0: The man of and full uh-huh. ready, I'm ready. Welcome to another episode of PEM Currents, the pediatric emergency medicine podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this is episode four of season one of the Toxicology podcast series that Suzanne Mazur and I put together. As you know, Suzanne is the medical director of toxicology at Seattle Children's. So episode four is the final episode of season one, but don't worry, we're working on season two. As is the case with previous episodes, we are offering CME and MOC Part 2 through Cincinnati Children's. Details in the show notes and on PEMblog.com. As a nice counterpoint to Episode 3, which focused on acetaminophen, this episode will focus on salicylate ingestions. Take it away, Suzanne.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Talks Talks. Today, I will be talking about one of the more common and also more concerning ingestions in pediatric emergency medicine. So let's start with a case. Your patient is a 21-month-old who is found in the bathroom, sucking on a tube of grandpa's ointment. He comes into the ED about five hours later, where he's noted to be lethargic, vomiting, and diaphoretic, with what the family describes as panting respirations. His temperature is 38.2, respiratory rate is 44, heart rate is 140, and blood pressure is 80 over 45. You get a venous blood gas and you find that he has a mixed respiratory alkalosis and metabolic acidosis. So what do you think is going on? You send one of the family members home to find grandpa's ointment and they bring back a tube of arthritis rub. You call the poison center and give them the information and you learn that this contains 30% salicylate. So let's talk about salicylate poisoning today. The most famous of the salicylates is aspirin, which is also known as acetylsalicylic acid or sometimes abbreviated as ASA. Salicylates also are commonly found in some topical liniments and lotions. For example, Bengay lotion or Icy Hot Balm, both contain salicylates. You can also find salicylate mixed with bismuth in Pepto-Bismol, a common over-the-counter anti-diarrheal and also in some food flavoring additives. The most famous in pediatric toxicology is oil of wintergreen, which is a food flavoring, which is sometimes also used as a liniment. And oil of wintergreen is something that contains 98% methyl salicylate. So it's very, very toxic, rarely found, but if your patient ingests it, you should be very worried because there's a huge concentration of salicylate in this oil of wintergreen. Although, especially in adult medicine, we can see patients with chronic salicylate poisoning, I'm going to limit the scope of this tox talk to acute ingestion, which is more common in kids and teenagers compared to chronic ingestion. So let's first talk about the toxic dose of salicylate. This is usually considered to be about 150 milligrams per kilo of salicylate. Usually when we get closer to 300 milligrams per kilo, we are much more worried about moderate to severe toxicity. Pathophysiology of salicylate is complicated. The first step is the salicylates directly stimulate the central respiratory center. They cause tachypnea and hyperpnea, or deep, rapid breathing, and can lead to an initial respiratory alkalosis. This may be relatively transient, so you may not see it in your pediatric patient, but it's very helpful if it's there as the first sign of salicylate poisoning. The next thing salicylates can do is they can uncouple oxidative phosphorylation, interfering with the Krebs cycle and therefore interfering with aerobic respiration. This causes increased heat production in the cells and leads to hyperpyrexia, diaphoresis, acidosis, and hypoglycemia. They also alter platelet function and inhibit formation of vitamin K-dependent cofactors, which messes with clotting. They can be corrosive to the GI tract as well, although this is usually seen a little bit later in the course. Clinically, early in the course, we look for nausea and vomiting. If the patient's old enough to describe hearing loss or tinnitus, meaning ringing in the ears, this can be a very helpful clue and very specific to salicylate poisoning. With regards to vital signs, we more commonly see tachypnea, hyperthermia, tachycardia, and potentially hypotension with salicylate poisoning. Look for an anion gap metabolic acidosis. Although potentially there can be an early respiratory alkalosis, most commonly in kids, we see them present with a pure metabolic acidosis. And then, neurotoxicity. This can be a continuum between confusion, dizziness, and sometimes seizures. Seizures are more common with salicylate poisoning in children compared to adults. What about salicylate levels? Salicylate levels are usually able to be run relatively quickly in the laboratory at your local hospital, and I recommend measuring them fairly early and measuring them often plasma salicylate levels usually peak somewhere between two and six hours post-ingestion. So they should be checked at about four hours post-ingestion and then every two to three hours until the levels have peaked, decreased, and then decreased again. Sometimes because of the type of salicylate that's ingested, you may see something that looks like a peak, but actually it's a false peak and the salicylate's still being absorbed and the level can get even higher. That's why we recommend really checking it Q2 until you see that the level has decreased twice and is getting close to the therapeutic range. As far as numbers go, we typically, in the USA, measure salicylate levels in milligrams per deciliter. But make sure to check your units to make sure that we are talking about the same units, milligrams per deciliter. In general, you'll see mild symptoms around a level of 30 to 50 milligrams per deciliter. Moderate toxicity, more like 50 to 80 milligrams per deciliter, and severe toxicity when the levels are climbing toward 100 milligrams per deciliter more. Levels do not always correlate with a level of toxicity, so your clinical exam is also very important in addition to the levels. You'll also want to follow electrolytes, blood sugars, coags, and blood gases, and be ready to treat hypoglycemia and electrolyte abnormalities as they come about. One really important word of caution has to do with sedation and intubation in salicylate poisoned patients. When salicylate poison patients are sedated, for example, before intubation, this can obviously decrease their respiratory drive, which may worsen their acidosis. Worsening acidosis allows more salicylate to be absorbed into the CNS, and you may see, you may cause some clinical deterioration with the sedation. In addition, with intubation, you wanna make sure and maintain the rapid respiratory rate that the patient had before sedation and intubation because this hyperventilation was actually keeping them from getting further acidotic and acidemic. So again, beware if you decide to sedate and intubate these patients that their respiratory rate stays intact. Please make sure to involve your local poison center or friendly neighborhood toxicologist early for these patients, as they can get really, really sick. Let's talk about the initial treatment of these salicylate poison patients. What about decontamination in these patients? If you have a patient who's had a massive ingestion, which I would define as close to 400 to 500 milligrams per kilo acutely, and their airway is protected, then this is a time where I may consider gastric lavage. But really the mainstay of decontamination treatment for salicylate-poisoned patients is activated charcoal. Again, activated charcoal dosing, we usually think about a gram per kilo initially. We always say that activated charcoal works best in the first hour post-ingestion, but it can be effective much later as well. In fact, in massive salicylate overdoses, we will often give multi-dose activated charcoal, especially if there's been a large ingestion, an ingestion of enteric-coated medication, or if you're worried about a concretion or bezoar, a collection of salicylate that is still being absorbed. And the dose we usually recommend for that is about half a gram per kilo every four hours. Again, talk to a poison center for recommendations about multi-dose activated charcoal, but don't forget about charcoal's role in absorbing extra salicylate that's in the body. What about enhanced elimination? We do have a nice trick for eliminating salicylate from the bloodstream, and that trick is urine alkalinization. For urine alkalinization, we give fluids that contain sodium bicarb and The plan with that is to increase the urine pH. If the urine pH is increased greater than 7.5, this will increase the elimination of salicylate by ion trapping, meaning the ionic form of the salicylate will be trapped in the renal tubule and it'll be excreted in the urine. If you are doing urine alkalinization, you wanna make sure that the serum potassium is monitored and replaced as needed because potassium depletion inhibits the ability of sodium bicarbonate to alkalinize the urine. And your urine alkalinization will not work as well. But if this is done right, it leads to urinary excretion and decreased CNS penetration for salicylates. The goal is to maintain the urine pH greater than 7.5 until the plasma salicylate level is less than about 30 milligrams per deciliter. And monitor your serum pH as well. Although you are trying to increase the urine pH, the serum pH should not be allowed to be raised greater than about 7.55. Urine alkalinization is really, really helpful in your moderately, poisoned salicylate patients and can be a real lifesaver. If your patient is getting sicker despite everything we've talked about so far, it may be time to consider hemodialysis. And I recommend contacting the nephrologist early because as you know, hemodialysis takes a little while to get started. But what we use as criteria generally for starting hemodialysis is acute ingestions with levels greater than 90 to 100 milligrams per deciliter and or intractable acidosis, signs of renal failure, pulmonary or cerebral edema, CNS disturbances like coma or seizures, or just if your patient is really, really sick and the level is getting worse and worse despite all the treatments that we've talked about. The end point for hemodialysis is correction of all the abnormalities we talked about and salicylate levels trending more towards 30 milligrams per deciliter. So in summary, for salicylate poisoning, respect the salicylate. It can be a really, really serious ingestion, especially methyl salicylate or oil of wintergreen, although there are a lot of over-the-counter products that contain up to 30% salicylate. If patients are following the textbook, they should present with a mixed respiratory alkalosis, which is seen early, and a metabolic acidosis later. Activated charcoal can be really helpful, and this is a time where we might use multiple doses. Urine alkalinization can be a real lifesaver, and think about consulting nephrology early if you think dialysis might be needed. For salicylate levels, follow the levels really closely. You wanna see a peak and then decrease at least twice, and we get less worried when the level trends more towards 30 milligrams per deciliter on its way down. And make sure to talk to your local poison center or toxicologist because, again, salicylate poisoning can be really, really severe.
0: Thank you again, Suzanne. That was fantastic. Hopefully, you learned a lot about salicylate toxicity. You can check out more great educational content on pemblog.com. Follow me on Twitter at PEMtweets or check out the Facebook page. We would really appreciate it if you left a review on your favorite podcast site or on the blog. We really appreciate the feedback. And again, you can get CME and MOC Part 2 for this episode through Cincinnati Children's. Information is in the show notes and on PEMblog.com. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Sobolewski. See you next time.